Welcome to the Geriatric Journal Club, featuring practical discussions on the front line of PALTC issues that you wrestle with every day. References for this podcast and links to previous recordings can be found at paltc.org slash journal club. I'm Suzanne Gillespie, AMDA's Vice President, and I cordially invite you to register for AMDA's annual conference, which will be held virtually March 11th through the 14th. The agenda features expert speakers discussing topics that are on the minds of practitioners everywhere, as well as opportunities for networking and engagement with colleagues, exhibitors, and PALTC stakeholders. Visit paltc.org conference to view the schedule and register today. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us again for another Florida Medical Directors Association Journal Club. Today, we're going to be talking about monoclonal antibody use and post-acute long-term care. And it is a question that we've, um, as an organization, received multiple times, uh, and our parent organization, AMDA, has been um, trying to answer. Fortunately, today, we have two great speakers um, who are going to help navigate us through the logistics of using this in in long-term care. I want to just um, start with acknowledging the fact that um, you know we've reached a a milestone that we knew was coming. Unfortunately, um, with the U.S. moving to over 500,000 deaths, which was acknowledged in a memorial service earlier in the week. That means globally we're over 2.4 million um, deaths and um, over 112 million cases um, worldwide and over 28,000, pardon me, 28 million in the United States. Why that becomes even more remarkable and um, unfortunate is, is that as of um, February 18, 35% of those deaths are still occurring in um, long-term care. So we have a lot to, you know, fortunately we're to look forward to with the vaccinations as well as with monoclonal antibody um, treatment. And we wanna just make sure that we're addressing and answering all of those questions. So our speakers today, includes Corey Bishop, who's an effusion nurse specialist for Omnicare Pharmacy Services, and Dr. Chris Lamell, who is a um, clinical strategy and innovator um, for CVS Health's long-term um, division with Omnicare. I'm gonna go ahead and turn it over to them because there's so much great detail. And um, you guys, I hope you're ready. Uh, I believe Shane will be driving your slides. No, I, I think you hit it on the head, and I know Corey's on as well. This is Chris Lamel. Sorry I'm in transit, so um, you won't get to see my smiling face, but there you see my picture there on the left, and, you know, Corey will be speaking as well. So we're going we're gonna to share the presentation here. Thanks, Shane. Um, why don't we hop to the objective screen on the next slide? And I just want to, much to is what Diane did, set up context for this talk. Um, there's two pieces. There's first that, you know, with COVID, as you all well know, we're really operating in uncharted territory. We learn more every day, and that will definitely apply to monoclonal antibodies as well. Um, but this is all about practicing harm reduction. So our goal here is really to give you information so that you're comfortable to make a decision with your patients about whether or not this is the right therapy for them. Um, and then kind of the second piece of it is, you know, with the, the terrible milestone of a half million uh, people who have lost their lives to COVID, 
um, as well as the outsized impact on long-term care. I do think, you know, getting our patients in long-term care vaccinated will hopefully turn that corner and it will probably decrease the need for monoclonal antibodies. But as always, there's always a but. Um, but remember that not everyone is vaccinated and employees in long-term care nationally seem to be not receiving or not wanting the vaccine at as high a rate as residents. So there still will be a need for this um, in the coming month or years or so, um, unfortunately. So today's objective is really to take a deep dive. We're going to try to take three different pieces of monoclonal antibodies. First, I'll briefly give you um, some history and the latest in research kind of summarized. Then Corey will walk you through the operational considerations um, that you need to successfully um, do a program such as this in your facilities. And then finally, um, we'll wrap up with just what we see nationally as far as what are the challenges and the common operating models for you to decide what's right um, in your practice. And then really hopefully get to the discussion because I really want to have a chance to to answer questions and talk about what we present. So um, with that, Shane, how about the next slide? Great. So monoclonal antibodies, believe it or not, this is a, an old technology. The first was developed in 1976 um, and first in treatment in 1985 or so. And there's about 100 or so approved therapies um, out there by the FDA. Monoclonal antibodies uh, for COVID are under um, an EUA, an emergency use authorization. Um, so this is not a new technology, so that just keep that in the backs of your minds. Um, Shane, maybe the next slide. But specifically, the research for um, COVID monoclonal antibody is pretty uh, sparse. And so basically, we're going to focus on showing you what we know about, uh, I think, the most robust set of data, which is BAM, Lenivimab, and um, Atesivimab. And so really what's been shown is there's a series of studies, it's progressive, it's called the BLAZE trials. So the latest is BLAZE 4. Um, BLAZE 4 is probably the best of them. It takes uh, a long back look, a whole six to eight month series. It's randomized, placebo controlled. It's a phase two to three trial, multi-center study. Um, and it looked at three different treatment pathways. Um, I'll shorten BAM up to BAM, and um, so that's one. So therapy. Then there's a combination of therapy, so two monoclonal antibodies. And then finally, placebo. Um, so of those three trials, really what Blaze tended to look at was um, main. Obviously, the first was the viral load um, and the viral load change from start of therapy to day 11. Um, and then secondary, which were symptoms mostly and also looking at death and hospital readmission. Kind of a caveat before I kind of jump to what the study sort of showed about viral load. You all well know that we don't know exactly what um, to make of viral load data with COVID. So what is a high viral load? What is a low viral load? What is a viral load that implies infectivity? What's a viral load that implies um, remission? Um, all of that data is coming in, but this study does take a look at just sheer, you know, absolute number. So high, medium, low. So in conclusion for this study, uh, basically it showed that the combination therapy showed a st statistically significant reduction in the viral load. So combination meant BAM and atesimab um, compared to the placebo and the solo trial. So, um, but again, take that with a grain of salt, that viral load reduction, um, it sounds good, but we don't know what the clinical impact is. 
Um, secondary, really, they did show throughout either the combination or the solo BAM alone to have reduction in symptoms. Uh, but the most important that we all get worried about is having to go back to the hospital. It looked like there was a difference um, between placebo and the therapy, whether it be solo or combination, such that it seemed like um, the solo or combination therapies did give some benefit of not having as high of a readmission rate. And fortunately, the good thing about all of these drugs, um, there were no deaths, very low side effect profile, as you can see, about nine mild reactions in the, the total study group. And for reference, if you want to pull the full article, we've given that as well. And um, how about the next slide there, Shane? So I'm going to hand it off to Corey Bishop, and she will tell you about the operational considerations. Corey? Yep. Thanks, Chris. Thanks. If, Shane, if you go to the next slide. So um, what, what we saw first is, you know, the drug was um, approved through an EUA, <clears throat> and the distribution channels were a little bit wonky at first. Um, the federal government bought all of the monoclonal antibody. Um, the first drug that, that was uh, allowed an EUA was bamlinivimab, and then shortly thereafter there was another combination drug. And they were first allocated to the states. Um, and so the states really, it, it, it was pretty apparent that they didn't really know where to go. And in most situations, the state sent the drugs out to hospitals. However, the drugs were not, the monoclonal antibody is not appropriate or indicated for hospitalized patients. There is really no indication once the patient is so far in their disease process, the, the monoclonal is not gonna help them. <clears throat> so once they realized, okay, this was really the wrong place to put it, they did develop the federal speed program um, and so that is where long-term care pharmacies were finally in the end of December able to actually get monoclonal antibody for, um, for patients in long-term care. So we were able to get our allocation through the federal speed program and that's where we are getting it now um, through federal speed program. Every long-term care pharmacy in the country has access to monoclonal antibody. Uh, right now, the um, monoclonal antibody that is available is bamlanivimab. Um, we are we do have at Omnicare Pharmacy we have um, uh, casavirimab and endevimab, which I'll talk about in a few slides. If you want to go to the next slide, Shane. Thanks. <clears throat> so both bamlanivimab and casavirimab and endevimab are available through the emerg emergency use authorization. Um, the patients that are, are uh, covered under the EUA are patients that are categorized as high risk. So they have to fall under at least one of the following criteria, a BMI of greater than 35, chronic kidney disease, diabetes, immunosuppressive disease, or currently receiving an immunosuppressant therapy, or they're 65 years of age. So that pretty much covers almost everybody in post-acute um, or if they're, they're uh, 55 years of age and older and have either cardiovascular disease, hypertension, or some type of chronic lung disease, they would also um, fall under the EUA. If you go to the next slide, it also has authorization for um, children 12 to 17 years of age that are in either the 85 percentile for their age or gender, or have sickle cell disease, congenital or acquired heart disease, any uh, neuro disorders, and if they're um, dependent on ventilator, trach, uh, G-tube, or if they have asthma and they require daily medication, they could also qualify for monoclonal antibody. Uh, if you go to the next slide. 
So what would disqualify them, and this is really important when we're thinking about dosing, <clears throat> excuse me, patients, um, again, if, that, if they're hospitalized, they don't qualify. So there's nothing um, that shows that they'll benefit once they uh, have progressed in their disease. Also, if they require oxygen therapy. So when we're thinking about when is the best time to prescribe monoclonal antibody, it's as soon as you identify that the patient is COVID positive and they start, they're symptomatic. Um, once they end up on oxygen due to symptoms of COVID, they're disqualified under the EUA or a patient that's already oxygen dependent, if we have to increase their, their oxygen flow rate, they again would be disqualified. <clears throat> as far as monoclonal and, and COVID-19 vaccines, if the patients received monoclonal antibodies, they, it's suggested that they shouldn't receive their COVID-19 vaccine for 90 days. They really don't need it. We've, we're giving them antibodies, they, they would be protected. If they've received their COVID-19 vaccine and they subsequently test positive, they should receive the monoclonal antibody. There's no reason why they shouldn't. If you go to the next slide. So the first drug, bamlinivimab, the dose for that drug is 700 milligrams. It's given as a one-time infusion. Um, it's manufactured by Lilly. And again, the first drug that was um, awarded the EUA. Uh, the EUA has changed multiple times <laughs> since, um, since November. And so it, it now, we, it was originally, we had to run it in uh, 250 milliliters over an hour. Um, you can do much shorter infusion times up to actually you can put it in 50 milliliters over 16 minutes. We have chosen, and many, many long-term care pharmacy providers have chosen to put it in a hundred over 30 minutes, and I'll explain um, the rationale behind that in a few slides. Uh, Casarivimab and Endevimab, a Regeneron product, um, combination product, 1,200 milligrams of Casarivimab with 1,200 milligrams of Endevimab. We combine that in one infusion um, bag, and it's given, again, as a one-time infusion over a minimum of 60, 60 minutes. Um, again, the monoclonals have, should be administered as soon as possible um, once you have that positive COVID test and within 10 days of symptom onset. So again, early identification. So if you think about the, the patient living in post-acute, we're, we're testing minimally weekly. In some countries, we're testing twice a week. So, so we have early identification and um, it's a perfect scenario to um, administer monoclonals. Early identification and once you have symptom onset, you wanna really consider um, prescribing the, the, the monoclonal for your patient. If you go to the next slide, Shane. So the combination drug that Chris was just talking about, um, bamlanivimab and the etesivimab combination, the dose for this is 700 milligrams of bamlanivimab and 1400 milligrams of the etesivimab. These again are administered as a single infusion. And again, as soon as possible um, after you have a positive viral test and then within the 10 days of symptom onset. So here's the skinny on this. We don't have this drug yet. Um, it is going to be the allocation of this drug and distribution will be controlled again by the US government. Um, but I have not seen anything yet that they have determined what the uh, distribution channels will be. So um, we, don't have a, we don't have any information on this yet. And there is a lot of bamlanivimab available right now in the federal, it, there, there is, I mean, every pharmacy um, has bamlanivimab bamlanivimab available. Um, we have over 5,000 doses in our pharmacies across the U.S., so there is a lot of it available. If you go to the next slide. 
So here's the information on the updated EUA. So uh, this came out about, I want to say, three or four weeks ago. Lily updated the EUA. One um, really great thing that came out of the EUA, as part of the emergency use authorization, you do have to review with the patient um, the, the emergency use authorization. And part of the, one of the barriers that we saw with this is the, the patient um, guide that you had to review was not very patient friendly. In fact, it read just like the healthcare um, uh, a provider guide. And so we lost patients. They're very nervous. It said it's not, you know, it's not approved by FDA. It's, it's, it has an emergency use authorization and patients opted out of the program. So Lily did release a updated patient friendly guide, which is excellent. That's the screenshot that you see um, on the screen right now. The second part of the updated EUA was, as I said, um, you can mix it in um, smaller volumes and infuse it over shorter infusion times. So another barrier that we're, we're um, facing with administration of monoclonal antibodies in the post-acute setting is the nursing time. Um, so it requires uh, pretty much one-on-one -on -one nursing and 60 minutes um, to infuse it and 60 minutes to observe the patient is a, is a huge struggle for uh, post-acute nursing facilities. So the opportunity to shorten the infusion time was a really big win for nursing. We chose the 100 milliliters um, over 30 minutes. Uh, rather than the 50 over 16 minutes for a couple of reasons. We had some concerns about rapid infusion using 60 minutes as nursing staff in post-acute are, are really more accustomed to infusing uh, a minimum of 30 minutes. Using the 30 minutes would require the staff to check the vital signs at the halfway point, which would identify a potential infusion reaction before the entire dose was infused. So we felt that was the safest way to go. And then if we mixed it in a 50 ml bag and they failed to infuse the chaser bag, the patient would lose 50% of the dose. And so under the EUA, the, the monoclonal antibodies do need to be basically chased with at least 25 milliliters of normal saline after we infuse the monoclonal antibody, um, just to ensure that the entire dose is delivered and we clear the tubing. If you move to the next slide, thanks. So we'll look at, you know, there's definitely some, you know, uh, guardrails and, and requirements that we have to consider when we're looking at, um, you know, developing a program in a post-acute facility. Anaphylaxis treatment, it is a biologic and there, you know, are definitely some requirements around being prepared for anaphylaxis. We haven't seen, um, I haven't seen any at Omnicare. We have infused, as of last night, we got the numbers, we've infused uh, 1,115 doses and have not had any um, incidents of anaphylaxis. You have to consider nursing time, IV access, and the monitoring. Um, you want to look at that exclusion criteria, as we talked about, prescribing um, as early on as possible. Um, also looking at the vaccination timing, and um, we've created a great toolkit, and I'll talk about that in the next slide. If you move to the next slide, Shane. So IV access, um, it is peripheral. There's no need for midline or pick line. So um, you want, we want to make sure that the facility can 
um, get peripheral access before we dispense the drug. Um, the, the monoclonal antibodies have short stability. They are only stable for 24 hours refrigerated after they have been mixed. So we do encourage nursing facilities to establish peripheral access before um, we will actually send mix the drug and send it out to them. And we are at Omnicare, we send it out stat to the facilities once they have um, confirmed that the patient um, has agreed to the drug, they've consented, and that they have established the IV access. There is a potential for a hypersensitivity reaction, so we also send out an anaphylaxis kit, and we include the anaphylaxis orders in our prescriber order sheet. Um, so, so all of that is um, already set up for the facility. They don't have to scramble. They have everything um, available to them, and we send that with all of the supplies. Um, there, uh, you know, the, the EUA suggests that they can consider slowing or stop, and obviously stopping the infusion if there is um, any symptoms of a, an infusion-related reaction. If you go to the next slide. So the monitoring, um, the patient should be monitored um, during the administration and for at least one hour post-infusion. And again, this, the, these are some of the challenges that um, many of our post-acute uh, facilities face is, is the nursing time for the monitoring. Um, the slide shows all of the, uh, obviously, the infusion-related reactions that, that um, the facilities are taught to monitor for. They should be monitoring, obviously, baseline um, vital signs, and then every 15 minutes during the infusion, and then every 15 minutes um, for one hour post-infusion. And then they would just resume their COVID monitoring per facility protocol. So if you move to the next slide. So what we've done um, at our organization is we've created um, a toolkit for facilities, which would include an administration algorithm. Um, so we, we created an algorithm that basically you've identified a COVID positive patient. And then do they have um, onset of symptoms? And so would you consider, you know, certainly consider a monoclonal antibody. Are they on oxygen? Have they required an increase of their, of their O2 flow rate? And it just goes down. Um, the line, so it walks them through um, everything they need to do to prepare to prescribe, to, to administer the monoclonal antibody. We have an intake prescriber order form that actually walks the prescriber through everything they need to have in place to safely administer and, or prescribe and then for the staff to administer the monoclonal antibody. And that's an example on the, this screen of the intake um, prescriber order form. We have a nursing care plan, which is required under CMS for our, our facilities. We have a sample consent form, an administration flow sheet, a facility preparation checklist just to help you know, prepare them, make sure they have everything in place. We have an administration procedure, a skills competency checklist, and of course the EUA um, patient fact sheet and the EUA healthcare provider fact sheet. And uh, there's a little note here, Operation Warp Speed. We're pretty proud of this toolkit. It is available to you. Um, Operation Warp Speed requested the Omnicare Nursing um, Toolkit, and it is available. It's publicly available now um, on, uh, I think it's Project Echo, which is part of the Warp Speed uh, website. So all of these tools are available um, to, to any facility that wants to use them. If you move to the next slide. And so I think I'll turn it over now to Chris to talk about some of the program options and um, then we can open it up for questions. Chris, you're on. And now a word from our sponsor, U.S. Post-Acute Care.
Let's talk for a minute about goals of care conversations. Now more than ever, post-acute clinicians should initiate these discussions with their patients. At US Post-Acute Care, our clinical team is committed to regular goals of care conversations with each seriously ill patient. We help our patients to think through their goals and express what's most important to them. Now we can develop a care plan that aligns with their goals and their values. Using a technique first developed by Ariadne Labs, these structured conversations have shown meaningful improvements in the quality, cost, and effectiveness of care. Our chief medical officer, Dr. Kevin Henning, is highly committed to making the goals of care conversation a foundation of effective care for our clinical team. At US Post-Acute Care, that's what we think. Now we'd like to know what you think. You can reach us at uspostacutecare.com or on LinkedIn, and Dr. Henning will be happy to respond. Thanks for listening. Great, thanks, Lori. So, Shane, you can hop to the next slide, please. Excellent. So, really, what this represents are that there are three models that we've seen, you know, nationally. If we had to summarize it. Um, so starting on the you know, far left-hand side of the slide is infusion on-site. You can think of that as the self-service at facility model. Um, obviously, all of these models have pros and cons, but we'll just kind of tick through really briefly each one's benefit or drawback. Uh, so what we've noticed for the on-site model, in addition to um, what Corey spoke about, pros of it, complete control. Obviously, the facility can control end-to-end -end what happens. Also, there's a reimbursement benefit of about 350-ish dollars, um, which is quite high for an infusion service, but that's built at the acute care rate, so there's a financial incentive for the facility. Um, the drawbacks, Corey talked about it, there's some um, quite extensive nursing time that's needed. Um, also, you have to be have a facility that's comfortable with um, doing all of that management. So starting an IV, monitoring the patient, being able to treat the various side effects. So things to keep in mind um, about setting up that model. Um, in the middle, there's definitely some interest in transporting fo folks off-site. Obviously, it relieves the labor constraint that we've been talking about, but really the cons to that is really it probably boils down to logistics and patient safety. Um, you know, having to figure out how to get a patient to a site safely and back may seem easy, but um, depending on the level of acuity of that patient, it could be quite complicated. I haven't really seen that one um, quite so much out, at least in long-term care, really more for uh, the outpatient setting, I think. And then finally, there's a bit of an end-to-end -end service that's out there, um, basically having a, an on-site um, infusion at your place. However, you have a contract team come in to do it. Um, Omnicare offers, you know, and Corey's going to kick me in the head for saying this, very limited. We have a, a legacy set of infusion nurses that can help these services in certain markets, but very limited. They face the same constraints as everyone else does nationally with labor. Um, pros of that, really, again, you get basically end-to-end -end service at the site. Um, also, you will alleviate some of those labor constraints. Obviously, the, the cons, uh, variable cost, it's really dependent on, um, you know, what service you use to come and actually do that. Um, there are a few states and some federal programs that actually pay for it. Um, I think those are winding down just because, you know, the demand may start to decrease, and obviously everyone's super focused on vaccinations. 
And then finally, there's obviously relying on a third party to schedule, you know, you may get a contract to have folks come in. They might say they can come in tomorrow, but tomorrow might turn into two to three days. And there's a very narrow therapeutic window for this treatment. So things to keep in mind for those models. Um, next slide, please, Shane. Um, finally, best practice summaries. Um, we won't belabor this because I think Corey did a, a great job with this. Um, but really, it's all about knowing the facility and staff and what they're comfortable with really educating that staff, but also families on admission. Um, I think that's really important, the family and patient side of it. Um, if this is going to become something for that patient to consider, giving them and arming them with the information about this therapy is critical. Um, obviously, you can think about contract infusion nurses or having vascular access support. Um, really, the one that I think is probably the most useful if you're gonna do this on-site is actually batching patients together. If your facility is unlucky enough to have, you know, an outbreak in multiple patients, you know, having a room set aside where, you know, one nurse can supervise, you know, three to four different patients, you spread out that labor a little bit and don't face as much of a constraint. But obviously, there's facility limitations with that. So um, basically, that's that's something to keep in the back pocket for you. Um, next slide, please, Shane. And I think that will get us to the question and answer session. I really appreciate you all listening in and joining, um, but really want to open it up for discussion or any questions if you have it. Yes, if you have any questions, you please please feel free to take yourself off mute or enter the questions in the um, group chat. And I just want to start with, by thanking you both for um, coming and, and sharing this information with us. I know we have a few facilities in the state of Florida who's doing this and many more across the country. Um, you know, you spoke of the, the nursing um, barriers. How have you seen, um, what have you seen facilities do to overcome that? You spoke of the, the, the creating that room, but have you seen that in practice? Yes, yeah, so we have seen, um, particularly early on um, in mid-January, where we saw the, the greatest number of patients being infused, facilities would um, basically clear a room on their COVID unit and infuse multiple patients. Um, and what we saw in best practice was one RN to maximum of three patients at a time, and we put um, a CNA in the room to actually help do the vital signs and then the nurse the RN would be monitoring um, the patient and you know starting starting the next patient so so that was a, a best practice um, a couple of other things that we see um, for continuum of care communities right now where they're seeing the the, the greatest number of monoclonal antibody um, I'm sorry COVID positive patients are in their ILs because ILs are sort of last to get vaccinated so what they're doing is moving patients. They're, they're taking advantage of the, uh, the um, waiver on the three-night three stay, and they're moving them into their, their skilled facility the night before, and then we're putting them in their, their uh, cohort unit and then infusing them the next day, um, which is working out great, and then sending them back. They, the patient's given the opportunity to stay another night, and then they go back into, in, into their independent living status. So that's working out really, really well with a couple of um, organizations that we work with. 
Um, and then really, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing obviously a decline in the usage because uh, it, it, at this point, most facilities have vaccinated, have gone through, you know, both rounds of vaccination. So, I mean, that's a good thing. Uh, there's a lot of monoclonal antibody um, in stock, so it is available. I would just take this opportunity um, to to say to everybody on the phone, if if you're reluctant, if you have a COVID positive patient in post acute, and you're reluctant to prescribe this, I would ask you to think about what it's like to be a post acute to, to be a patient in a long term care facility today. They read the news, they know what the numbers are, and they know where the deaths are. And now they've been given a diagnosis of COVID positive. And they sit in their room and wonder, am I going to be next? And this drug is giving them hope. And they are so grateful. The stories that we're hearing are just remarkable. Um, so it, it, is, it is the treatment. We have a treatment. And it does give the, these patients hope and their families hope. So I, I, if you have any reluctance at all, it, it is something that we can give them. And we are seeing remarkable results. So, Corey, we had a question um, in uh, regarding the inclusion criteria. If a person is 30 years old and they have diabetes or asthma, can they get the monoclonal antibody infusion? <clears throat> they have to fit the criteria. So if they don't fit the criteria under the EUA, they can apply to the FDA um, for compassionate use and the FDA is approving them and they're turning it around within hours. So you just have to do a compassionate use and apply to the FDA. And, and you know, we've walked a couple of people through that. Yeah. We also had a question about um, doing this effusion in a health center and I'm not sure if um, you wanna provide any more any more context, but I don't know if Omnicare has worked with facilities that are transferring member their their um, residents out, or you know, can can you speak to the logistics of doing it that way? If someone is working with uh, um, a infusion center, how, how is that working? Yep, some some facilities have chosen not to infuse in-house um, just based on either staffing constraints um, or, you know, maybe they don't have the staff to do the infusion or their staff is not um, IV trained and, and they're not IV certified, they're not comfortable with it. So they are transferring patients out to infusion centers and that's fine too. Um, infusion centers, if there are some um, if there are some within a close proximity, that's great. You know, we'll do whatever we can to support our customers to ensure that the patient has access to the monoclonal antibody. Great, great. And I want to, and Diana, I just wanted to circle back to the, the nursing question that you posed at the beginning. Um, in addition to logistical things, you know, groups like AMDA and FAMDA, depending on what the resources are in Florida. Some states have actually recognized the, the staffing challenges and set up strike forces. I don't know what Florida has done at this point, um, but there may be state you know, resources that you all can lean on if you need to have someone come in and assist with the infusion. Yeah. You know, I haven't heard um, 
of I, I know we have strike um, forces um, throughout the state. I haven't heard of them doing the monoclonal antibody infusions. If anyone is on the call and they could educate us about how that's working, um, I will. I would love to hear from you. Um, I would also pose a, a question to um, our audience: like, who's you utilizing this um, therapy now in your facilities? And maybe you can chime in and share the experience that you you're seeing. I think, yeah, we, we had something from Timothy who's just getting started <laughs> in the next week or two, which is awesome. Um, there, the question that has come up a lot, and maybe you guys can um, enlighten us in, in what you're seeing out there, the question that keeps coming is, can, how, what is the, the interval um, between using monoclonal antibodies and getting vaccinations? As far as I've read, is 90 days. Is there any other literature or any other information that you may um, be able to share with us? Yeah. I don't think there's anything new. Chris, are you aware of anything new out there? No, there, 90 days seems to be it for now. I think, you know, as the CDC gets more vaccine data, that may change like everything else in COVID. I know some states, depending on who's in charge of the Department of Health, you know, whether it be an epidemiologist or an immunologist, have been crafting their own sort of guidelines that kind of intersect, you know, I think that time window that you speak of, Dan, versus the person's comorbidity. So, very sick, not very sick, but for the most part, I think 90 days seems to be it, is what we've seen. Any guidance that you guys can provide, um, let's say for a facility that may not be connected with Omnicare, how should we be working with um, our long-term care pharmacies to bring this into our facilities? Well, all long- Thank you, Corey. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Corey. Oh, no, all long-term care pharmacies have access through the, the federal speed program. Um, and, you know, certainly if a long-term care pharmacy needs support or help, I'm happy to help. You can, you know, connect them with me and I can get them connected to the federal speed program. And as I said, our, our protocols, our entire um, toolkit is available. It's publicly available to everybody we want to share. Um, we want to make sure that everyone has access and has it the tools to be successful. So I'm happy to share that as well. Corey, just out of curiosity, I know that um, sometimes when you're writing orders for access, <laughs> it, you you may, may have written that order at 7 a.m. and um, you're still waiting for access at 12 um, p.m. Um, I'm just curious to know what, what you're seeing as far as what's happening around this and if those facilities who don't have a RN or a nurse who can, a nurse in, in the facility who can um, start an IV? Yeah, most, I mean, we have at Omnicare and I think most long-term care pharmacies have contracts with vascular access providers where they have teams um, throughout, you know, the state that can go in and start IVs. Um, one of the problems we have seen throughout COVID um, started in March and it hasn't stopped is vascular access teams are typically small companies um, with a team of maybe five to 10 nurses and those teams go down when they have positive COVID nurses. Um, so that's been a challenge. Um, and, you know, sometimes I've even had 
uh, facilities contact the hospital where the hospital nurses will go over and help them out with access. So, um, but we've been pretty successful with access um, throughout the, you know, we've only had the monoclonals since January and we haven't had any issues with access. So <clears throat> knock on wood. <laughs> it's been good. <laughs> um, That's great. Yeah. Chris and Corey, do you have any other insights you think um, to share with us? I would just encourage you to consider using this when you have COVID positive patients. We are again seeing just miraculous results and uh, the education team actually selected this last slide. Uh, we have sort of a, a bunch of slides we can select from for, for the last question slide and this uh, a lot of patients will report that they have this incredible energy within 24 to 48 hours after receiving monoclonal antibody and energy um, that they don't typically have. So I thought this was really a great slide for them to select um, for this, this deck. So um, again, it's, it, we are seeing incredible results. So please consider it. Yeah, and I just want to echo that. This is what Corey said. It's, it, you know, it's, it really takes a bit more discussion because in full transparency with all things COVID, you have to make sure you tell people that there's an EUA. Um, once you clear that hurdle and you see the results that we're seeing around the country, it, it really is remarkable. Um, and it does give our patients hope. If you remember back when this all started, long-term care was, I think, the hardest hit. And a lot of people there really just felt like they were forgotten. So. Um, and keep up the good work that you're all doing out there for our patients. Um, we did have another question about the cost um, to the facility per dose. That's a great question. So, so it's, um, as far as it's free, basically it's the bottom line for the drug. Obviously there's raw material, or I shouldn't say raw material, but ancillary IV materials like syringes and that stuff. We were talking minimal there, like, 20, 30, 40 bucks. Again, it depends on what contract you have and what long-term care pharmacy you're using. But unlike other monoclonal antibodies where those drugs cost, you know, several thousand dollars, this is at no charge to the facility through the federal government. So there's a pretty low financial impact. Um, the other side of it too is the revenue side. You know, if you need to encourage your facility or your administration to, to go through this hurdle, um, again, they're getting 350 bucks or so for two hours of work, which I think, you know, the economics greatly outweigh, you know, the nursing two-hour cost time. So I think it's financially viable. I think it's at very, very, very almost nil cost. So really economics shouldn't be a big hurdle to go, go over. Yeah. And before I, before I like let you guys go, I just, one other question that is sort of, rotating, I guess, in my brain is about the amount of um, treat, um, medication we have available. Um, you know, I don't know if you want to speak to to that. Um, um, Corey, you mentioned that there, are, there is a lot of this, a, lo a lot of this treatment available. And I've seen reports where there's just been concern of the underutilization. Um, you know, and, I, and you spoke so passionately about it earlier, uh, about making sure we tell people about this. What is, what are you, how are you guys addressing that underutilization in some areas where we're seeing uh, um, this medication stockpiled but not being used? Yeah, well, I mean, 
So I think there was some miscommunication early on and that there was miscommunication from the federal government that pharmacies couldn't advertise that we had it. Or, and I think what their intent was, you can't use it for, you know, marketing gain. You didn't, it's not your medication. You don't own it. The government does. And then the government said, please make sure everybody knows you have it because all this drug is sitting around. So what we're doing is we're, you know, communicating through our um, team of consultant pharmacists to our, our customers to say it's available. You know, please, you know, we'll hook you up. We do WebExes. We've done hundreds of WebExes with our, our customers to, you know, let them know here's how to do it. We support them. As, as Chris alluded to, we have nurses that are, are uh, out there actually doing some of the infusions where, where we do have you know, uh, infusion nurses available, um, just encouraging the utilization. A lot of the state uh, departments of health are doing um, you know, widespread uh, marketing campaigns to get, get the word out that, that there's a lot of drug available. And last I heard two weeks ago, there were over 400,000 doses sitting in hospitals and pharmacies across the nation that are not being used. Now, now that being said, you know, we, we are seeing, uh, because of the vaccinations, we're definitely seeing a slow slowdown of the, the number of outbreaks in, in long-term care, which is wonderful. So if we, we don't use it because we don't need it, that's a good thing. That means we, we're getting some control of the virus. Um, but for patients that are positive and, and qualify under the EUA, you know, we, we hope that they get the opportunity at least to have this offered to them. Thank you. And if if um, if there are any future questions or any other things that you you are sitting here, you're listening to, and you may think of, please do not hesitate to reach out to us. We'll get your questions to Corey and and Chris, and make sure we get the answers for you and your facility and your residents. I thank you guys for your time. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, same here. Thanks for having us. All right, have a great day. Support for this podcast is brought to you by U.S. Post Acute Care.